Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be finishing Acts chapter 17 today as we've been continuing through the book of Acts. This morning we're continuing through our study in the book of Acts. We're going to be finishing a two-part look at Paul's time alone in Athens, which we're covering in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. But in part two, we're going to be studying verses 22 through 34. But just for some context, as we saw last week in verses 16 through 21, Paul, who was now alone in the city of Athens, there in the southern portion of Greece, was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come join him. As he does that, he begins to survey the city. And as he does that, his spirit, we're told, was provoked within him as he saw how the city was given over to idols. It's recorded for us historically that the people in Athens were numbered three or were outnumbered three to one by the idols in the city. There was somewhere around 11,000 people in the city of Athens at this time, and there was over, uh, over 30,000 idols in the city of Athens at the time that Paul was there walking around and, and getting a, a feel for what was going on in this city that was uh, very much famous still in Paul's time. This provoking, this stirring of spirit actually drew Paul to greater outreach, going to the synagogue, reasoning with the Jewish and Gentile worshipers there, pointing them to Jesus as the Messiah, and then going into the marketplace, the hub of the city where sort of the center of civic life took place. And there in the marketplace daily, he was reasoning with those who happened to be there preaching Jesus and the resurrection to them. And this led Paul to being approached by two groups from two philosophical camps, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who engaged in discussion with Paul who had been preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And because of that conversation, some ended up mocking Paul and others were just sort of confused or skeptical at what Paul was preaching. And so they bring Paul to the Areopagus. This was a, an elevated place in the city, not far from the Acropolis where a council met. This council in Paul's day was providing oversight to matters of religion and education. They wanted to find out what Paul's doctrine, his teaching was, and what all of it meant. And so Paul now is given this invitation to point this council, the philosophers who brought him from the marketplace and any others who were present, to the resurrected Jesus. See, because Paul didn't close the door of witnessing in the marketplace, by being angry or offended by their mocking, their insults, their disrespect, or even their confusion or skepticism, the door was now kept wide open for him to preach on the Areopagus. And we got into this last week, last week but we're going to revisit and dive in a little bit more to verses 22 and 23, where Paul begins to respond on the Areopagus to the Council, and we see this in verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. As we considered last week when looking at these two verses, Paul began his address to the council of leaders on the Areopagus by speaking respectfully and graciously, telling them that he perceived that in all things they were very religious. He doesn't talk about how he saw the altar to the unknown God and then begin to mock them for it or mock them for the overwhelming amount of altars or idols or temples or whatever it is that he found. He doesn't call them idiots even because of their ignorance. No, the provoking of spirit that took place in Paul as he saw how the city was full of idols stirred in Paul a deep heart of compassion for those in this city who had given themselves over to idolatry and godless philosophies, which drove Paul to share the gospel with those who were captives to the enemy. As I said last week, the Athenians were ultra-inclusive spiritually to the point where they have this altar set up in Athens with the inscription to the unknown God. But in that, they showed their ignorance, their, their lack of knowledge of the one true God, Yahweh. They knew a lot, lot about a lot of gods, but they were missing out on knowing the only true God who wanted them to know him personally and in knowing him receive his gift of eternal life. And this reminded me of what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. We're told this in John 17, verses one through three. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Notice, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, this was the heart of Jesus for these idolatrous philosophers on Mars Hill. It was the heart of Jesus for the person and is the heart of Jesus for the person we might think is the most evil or wicked person on the face of this planet. It's the same heart that Jesus had and has for you and for me, that we would know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. This is eternal life, to know God. Know him, not just know about him, but to know him experientially, to know him relationally. While Jesus was unknown to this council, Paul found his opportunity to make Jesus known to them. And as he's speaking to Gentiles who didn't know the scriptures, Paul doesn't preach to them as he did to those in the synagogue. Instead, he's using the example of the unknown God that they were ignorant of to ultimately point them to the resurrected just for some added background regarding this altar to the unknown God, because there's some historical context here, Bible commentator William Barclay said this. He said, there were many altars to unknown gods in Athens. 
Some 600 years before this, a terrible plague had fallen on the city, which nothing could halt. A Cretan poet, Epimenides, had come forward with a plan. A flock of sheep were starved and then set loose on the Areopagus, lush with grass. It would have been unnatural for them not to eat, and those that lay down instead of eating were sacrificed on altars to an unknown god, God, which were then constructed alongside where the sheep were lying. Many such altars were constructed, which had later fallen into disrepair. By Paul's day, one had been restored to its original condition. In the original story, Barclay says, the plague was lifted as a result of these sacrifices. You know, I find it really interesting that Paul used this altar for his starting point to preach to those on the Areopagus because Paul is going to use the unknown God to reveal the known God, the one true God who became man to save us from the plague of sin that had no solution, no cure. Jesus, the Lamb of God, laying his life down as our perfect, sinless, atoning sacrifice to bring us salvation. It's, it's as if Paul, knowing sort of the historical context behind that altar, is pointing to a greater spiritual truth, that it wasn't those sheep that were sacrificed that brought salvation to the people. It's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who brings salvation to all people. And I just love that Paul uses this as a, as a jumping off point for his sermon. And this is a great example for us because each person that we come in contact with and that we seek to share the gospel with has a different starting point, has a different knowledge of who God is. And, and we seek to meet people where they're at, to find a starting point with someone to make a beeline then to the cross of Christ. Spurgeon used to say that, you know, whatever, wherever you find yourself in Scripture, make a beeline from that place to Jesus. And so we seek to do the same thing as we speak to people about the Lord. And Paul clearly did this here. Paul has found his starting point, which spoke into their spiritual ignorance. He's, he's now going to proclaim to them the one whom they worshiped without knowing by explaining who that God is and what he's like in verses 24 through 31. So let's now look at verse 24. It says, God, him I proclaim to you, God, he says, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul takes these people back to the beginning, declaring to them the God we know as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was unknown by them by beginning with creation. And I think it's important to point out that Paul believed in the biblical account of creation. He didn't believe that everything was just a, a random act of chance, some cosmic explosion but that something came from someone. Something didn't come from nothing, but something came from someone. That someone was creator God, was Yahweh. 
And Paul here is testifying that it was God who made the world and everything in it. And not only did he create all of it, he is Lord, Paul says, of heaven and earth, which isn't just Paul saying that the one true God wasn't one among many gods, but that he's the God above all man-made gods. But this is also a declaration of the omnipotence of our God, that he is all-powerful. This God, the one true God, the God they did not know, does not dwell in temples made with hands. This is a similar thing that God actually spoke to Solomon when Solomon desired to uh, make the temple. You know, this is great, but God can't fit here. God's way too big to dwell in this temple. Paul's sort of echoing that same truth because God is too big, too powerful for that. Paul is elevating Yahweh to a place in infinitely far above all the false gods of the Athenians, which is the rightful place he deserves. The God that Paul knew experientially, though he was unknown to these people, was and is the creator. But look what he goes on to declare in verse 25. He goes on to say, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So Paul further states that God doesn't need the worship of those he, he created, that he's not in need of anything. We can't add anything to who he is because he's the one who gives to all life and breath and all things. This was the opposite of the mindset that the Athenians had about their gods, that in their worship, in their sacrifices, in their offerings of food and drink that they would leave in front of the altars that they were providing for. They were taking care of the needs of their gods who essentially needed them to do these things for them. The, the gods of the people were dependent upon the people. But by Paul saying this, he's making it clear that this God they did not know is so amazing that he actually gives to us what we need even though we can't offer him anything he could ever need in return because, again, he needs nothing. He's self-sustaining. And in that, Paul is declaring about Yahweh that he is provider, that he's good, that he's a God who loves to bless, loves to give. It's a good reminder for us, isn't it? Because oftentimes, because of our situations, we can start to lose sight of the fact that God is good. We can start to define the goodness of God by the badness of our situations. We start to project the junk that we see around us or that's happening to us onto God and start to see him through the lens of our circumstances instead of seeing him as he actually is that he's good, that he's provider, 
that he's a sustainer of his people. We realize the gift that God has given us. If we have breath in our lungs, you and I have been blessed by God because he's the one that's made that happen. He's given life and breath and all things. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that these people did not know that Paul is seeking to bring revelation to. And he goes on to say in verses 26 and 27, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul further declares that this God, Yahweh, the God that they did not know, made humanity, making us from one blood. Speaking of the one man, Adam, creating people equal to one another, not creating us in different class systems or rankings or any sort of superiority to someone else in the human race. And from this one blood, this one man, Adam, he created every nation of mankind to dwell on all the earth. Not only is he making sure that the Athenians know that all men are on the same playing field, on equal ground before the Lord. This would have been a corrective word to the Athenians and to really all Greeks at that time who saw themselves as a, as a superior race to everyone else. Paul's going, you're not above. God's created us from one blood. Your blood's not any different than the blood of someone else. It's not more valuable. It's not doesn't have a higher standing in the sight of God because we're all from Adam. Adam through Noah, I should say, because, you know, there's a little restart there. This God who created us and, and made us to dwell on the face of the earth, Paul goes on to declare, has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings so that we would all seek the Lord in the hope that we might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In these things, Paul declares God's omniscience, that he's all-knowing. Yahweh, the God they did not know has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. Which means he has a purpose and had a purpose in when in history we were born and also a purpose in where in this world each of us were born. And this should encourage us today as we consider the state of our world and our nation and our state and our area in these last days that we're living in that God didn't make a mistake putting us where he did and having us live in history when he did. 
He has us where he has us on purpose. A redeemed people living in a broken and desperate world who he's called to bring a message of reconciliation to those separated from God by their sin. When and where each person was brought into the world over the course of history was with the purpose that each and every person would seek, would desire the Lord. That humanity in their spiritual blindness would grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. See, the, the will, the desire of God has never changed. Peter declared it to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. That he desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God isn't cruelly dangling a carrot in front of people's faces, reluctant to reveal himself to people who are seeking after him, keeping people at arm's length where they're searching for him, but never finding him. No. Those who genuinely seek him will find him. And in Paul declaring that he's not far from each one of us, we also see a declaration of God's omnipresence. But this also shows us that if there's ever a feeling in us that God is distant from us, that he's not near that any perceived distance is not on God's end because he's not far from each one of us. You know, if there's ever any sort of distance or perceived distance between us and the Lord, it's us who have distanced ourselves from him and not the other way around. Or maybe because we have some sin we've allowed into our lives that we haven't repented of. And that sin has brought about separation in our intimacy of fellowship with the Lord. He's not far from each of us. Not just for those who have called upon his name. But this is just as true for those who are still groping for him in the darkness. God is longing for people to know him, to find him, to find their hope in him. Paul is declaring who the unknown God is in these things. But look what he goes on to say in verses 28 and 29. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. I like what the Bible knowledge commentary said here. It says to buttress, which is just a funny word to use. That means to support or strengthen. To, to support or strengthen his point, Paul apparently quoted 
from Epimenides, the, Greek, the Cretan poet, whom Paul also quoted later in Titus 1, verse 12, for in him we live and move and have our being. Also, Paul quoted the poet Aratus from Paul's homeland, Cilicia. We are his offspring. This second quotation from Aratus's work, Phenomena, all people, Athenians along with all others are God's offspring, not in the sense that they are all his redeemed children or in the sense that they all possess an element of deity, but in the sense that they are created by God and receive their very life and breath from him. The Athenians' very creation and continued existence depended on this one God whom they did not know. No such claim could ever be made of any of the scores of false gods worshipped by the Greeks. Paul quoted their own poets to expose their own inconsistency, as John, Paul, uh, John Stott put it. Understand, Paul didn't quote these poets because he was validating or approving everything that they ever wrote, but he was pointing to a couple small nuggets of truth in the writings of a couple poets and philosophers that these Athenians read and respected to help them see the foolishness embedded into their massive idolatrous system and philosophies. The idols, the, the false gods created by mankind were made in the fallen or sinful image of those who created them. You know, when you read about the, the Greek gods, they were flawed beings, jealous, angry, vengeful, lustful. Why? Because they were created in the image of those who made them. They reflected the people that made them out of stone and metal. You ever notice that the things we create often can easily become an idol that becomes worshipped? Creatures worship creation oftentimes better than the creator. It's like us looking and that's why God oftentimes in the Old Testament will use the example of a potter and clay. You know, look at the clay and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. It just came about like this. It's so amazing. We go, man, there's a potter that did some amazing stuff with the clay. It didn't just get thrown on the ground and become an amazing vase or vase, however you want to pronounce it. If you pronounce it vase, you're cool. I want to hang out with you more. Um, if you say amazing instead of amazing, we're for friends already. <clears throat> if you don't say it, we're still friends. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But it's interesting how our hearts can drift to lesser things instead of the best thing, instead of the right thing. Things that easily start to captivate our hearts that should hold a much lesser place in our lives. And that was true for these Athenians. It's true for so many people 
on the face of this planet today. It's true even of us at times. These things that Paul is speaking into, pointing out the folly of their idolatry, it's something that we have to be reminded of and be cautious and guard against. These false gods were not divine beings. They were just the artistic talent and engineering of sinful human beings. As William MacDonald put it, these idols are, in a sense, the offspring of human beings, whereas the truth is that human beings are the creation of God. I like what John Stott said about Paul's message so far, really uh, revealing sort of insight into idolatry. He wrote this. He said, these are powerful arguments All idolatry, whether ancient or modern, primitive or sophisticated, is inexcusable. Whether the images are metal or mental, material objects of worship or unworthy concepts in the mind. For idolatry is the attempt either to localize God, confining him within limits which we impose, whereas he is the creator of the universe, or... To domesticate God, making him dependent on us, taming and taping him, whereas he is the sustainer of human life. Or to alienate God, blaming him for his distance and his silence, whereas he is the ruler of nations and not far from any of us. Or to dethrone God, demoting him to some image of our own contrivance or craft, whereas he is our father from whom we derive our being. He goes on to say, in brief, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. More than that, it actually reverses the respective positions of God and us so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. He says in closing, there is no logic in idolatry. It is a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. I just thought that was a really great insight. Paul has been pointing to the one true God declaring who he is, to to graciously expose the Athenians' ignorance and the foolishness of their idolatry so that their eyes would be open to the truth and so that they would come to know the only true God. But now let's see the conclusion of Paul's message in verses, verses 30 and 31. He says, Truly, These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
As I said at the beginning of our study, the Athenians were ultra-inclusive spiritually. They had this altar to the unknown God. This showed their ignorance, their, their lack of knowledge of the one true God, Yahweh. But it's important to understand from what Paul writes in the beginning of verse 30 that God did not excuse all the sins of the Gentiles from the past because of ignorance, because there is general revelation that God has left for us in his creation, as Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. But there is a strong emphasis here on God's patience in what Paul writes about in speaking about their times of ignorance. See, now that special revelation has come through the incarnation, God becoming man, Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, there is a responsibility to that revelation, to the gospel message. And the right response to this revelation that Paul has been giving them, exposing their false gods and revealing the one true God, is that God was now commanding them and people everywhere to repent. Repentance, which speaks of a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. The reason Paul says repentance is necessary and commanded by God, as we see in verse 1, is because God has appointed a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Repentance is necessary because judgment is coming. And though we don't know when that day is going to come, we do know who's going to be included in that judgment, a, a Christ-rejecting world or humanity. And we know who is going to be bringing that righteous judgment, the man, Jesus, whom God has ordained, which is actually the same thing Peter preached at the end of his gospel message to the Gentiles in Cornelius' home in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. The man ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus even speaks into this in John chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, where he shared that all, all judgment has been entrusted to the Son. And at the end of verse 31, Paul declares that God, Yahweh, the, the God they did not know, gave assurance of this promise about Jesus, about the righteous judge, by raising him from the dead. But I want us to notice that Paul's mention of repentance and of the man, Jesus, being raised from the dead, it makes it clear that Luke did not include every part, every detail of Paul's entire message to the council here on the Areopagus. See, in order for Paul to preach repentance, he would have also had to preach about their sinfulness and need for a Savior, repenting, turning away from their sin, their idolatry, and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. And in order for Paul to preach about the assurance that came about by God raising the man he ordained, Jesus, from the dead, he 
would have also had to preach about Jesus' crucifixion, which was necessary to atone for our sins and provide us with forgiveness, salvation, justification. There can be no resurrection without death happening first, and I'm confident that Paul preached both. But now let's see the response and results of Paul's message in verses 32 through 34. It says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You know, it's unclear if Paul actually got to finish preaching his message or if once he began to preach about the resurrection of the dead, his audience interrupted him and brought his message to an end. But what is clear is that Paul's preaching of the resurrection brought about two very strong responses. Some mocked him, but others put off his message wanting to delay it to another time, saying, we will hear you again on this matter. To which Paul departed from among that gathered group and no doubt continued to preach on a more individual basis with those who were open to the gospel. But while some mocked and others procrastinated, there were some who believed in Jesus and joined Paul. You know, we considered this last week when we saw Paul's preaching in the marketplace. But guys, these two responses is oftentimes two of the more prominent responses that we'll get when we seek to share the gospel. And it could be really discouraging. I mean, it could be discouraging when Someone is mocking us. They're trying to make us look stupid. You believe in an actual creation? Come on. You believe that there's some God that created everything? You mean that you believe there's a God who became man? He was born of a virgin? He lived a sinless life and then he died on a cross? You believe that? They could try to make us seem foolish for believing in God's word, believing what he's preserved for us, believing in what he's done. They can just make us want to shut down. I just don't want to try anymore. I just don't want to, I don't like it. Nobody likes being disrespected. No one likes to feel devalued by somebody else. but it it can also be discouraging when you're sharing the gospel and you can see glimmers of someone processing what you're sharing and at the end of it, they just go, you know what, can we just talk about this later? You know what, I don't really want to talk about this right now. Can we, you know what, later on, later on in my life, that's when I'll make a decision for Jesus. You know, How many people there are in this world who have kind of taken that stance later? I'll live for Jesus later. 
I'll surrender my, my life to Jesus later. And yet none of those people know if they're going to have the later. None of us know how much time we have. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 said, Behold, now is the time. It's the day of salvation. It's now. It's right now. It's not for another time. Because none of us are guaranteed any time. The one who has given to us life and breath and all things has not guaranteed us a long life. None of us have that guarantee from the Lord. You can imagine Paul pleading passionately with this council, even as he's speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. And yet the result being, Paul, you're dumb. Just shut up. Stop talking to us about this. I mean, we were interested, but the novelty is worn off. You believe in an actual bodily resurrection? That was foolishness to these Athenians. Live forever, but not in a body. I don't want to be back in a body again. I just could be a spirit for the rest of any unforeseen future. So while we don't know how many joined and believed, we're just told two specific names and that there were others with them. With Dionysius the Areopagite being mentioned, we see that at least one of the council members there on the Areopagus did repent, did put his faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Guys, you know our job as ambassadors of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as those who are pleading with the world that's been separated by God from sin, pleading with them to be reconciled to the Lord. Is Our job is not to save them, but our job is to share the gospel message that will lead them to salvation. You and I will never be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. As much as we would like to. You know what I'm talking about too. You've got people in your life. Man, you wish you could be the Holy Spirit. You're like, you know how much trouble I could have saved this person? If I could have just shook my knowledge and experience into them to keep them from having to make the mistakes that they made, going down the path that they did. But we can't. You and I are not Jesus. But we are to represent him. We are to tell others about him. We are to make our lives all about Jesus. Because as disciples of Jesus, we get that this life is not all that there is. There's more. There is a life to come. There is an eternity to come. And only those who come to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ will get to spend eternity 
with the Lord. To put it off is to say no. To delay is to say no to the message that should not be delayed, that is always demanding a response right now. Because the situation is that serious. Eternity is not something to take lightly. You know, some think that because there was no church seemingly planted in the city of Athens and, and only some believing and joining Paul, that Paul's ministry and message in Athens was a bit of a failure. Well, you know what? He didn't get as many people responding because he didn't, you know, he should have just preached Jesus from the beginning. He should have done what he did in the synagogues. He should have opened the scriptures as he did with them. So he failed. I respectfully disagree with any who would take that stance. Understand that Paul preached Jesus. His death and resurrection, meaning he preached the good news, the gospel. He preached Jesus faithfully in the synagogue. He preached Jesus faithfully in the marketplace daily. And then on the Areopagus, he again preached Jesus faithfully with, with the council and whoever else was present. And no matter the results, it's never a failure when we exalt and proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done and how people can find salvation in him alone. Never a failure. Anytime that you put all the spotlight on Jesus Christ, you have done the right thing. We may not always say it the right way. We may not always be very eloquent in how we present it. But even that is not what it's all about. We're just to give people Jesus. We look around and we see people groping their way in the dark. We see people in their blindness coming up with all kinds of crazy explanations about life and what life's all about. We see this groping in all kinds of different ways as people are searching for meaning, searching, searching for value in this life, searching for hope. You and I, who have put our faith in Christ, by the grace of God, in our groping, we found him because he's near, because he revealed himself to us in his grace. And in his grace, he saved us while we were yet sinners. And as we look around at this world that just you can see, we see the blindness. Guys, you and I that have clarity of sight, let's not despise the blind people. But let's bring the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness so that those who are blind, those who are 
sitting in the darkness and in the shadow of death confined Jesus Christ can find salvation, can find eternal life. Guys, we need endurance in these days to keep shining the light of Jesus into a dark world that is growing increasingly more hostile to him and to us as we seek to be his ambassadors And that just reminds us that we need the power of his spirit to be about his commission. We need the power of his spirit. We need God to fill us with his agape love so we can love lost people. We can even love saved people that we don't maybe get along with perfectly. Don't forget that the end of Jesus' great commission in Matthew chapter 28, the last thing that he left his disciples with was a promise that he would be with them always, even to the end of the age. And you guys know I love it when Jesus amends himself. He amends himself. There's no better thing. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll just show you that this thing is true. I'm going to just agree with myself. Amen. I'm going to do it. And that promise is for you and me today. As I said last week, Paul was alone in Athens, but he wasn't really alone. He had the Lord there with him. And you and I, as we're going through these dark days, you and I are not alone. We may feel alone. We may feel at times like we're the only ones that are seeking to live for Jesus, that are seeking to honor Jesus, that are seeking to bring the gospel of Jesus. We might be the only ones in a family or in a friend circle that that know the Lord personally, but you're not alone. He is with you always. He is not far from any one of us. He is near at hand. And the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present knows how to show up in our circumstances. We need him. We need him in these days. And he's provided for us what we need. He's provided for us what we need. But we've got to come to him continually or else we're just going to be operating in our own strength our own flesh our own wisdom we need the power of god to bring the gospel and love of god to a world that is in opposition to god and yet god knew that and he placed you and me where we are for such a time as this. You know, when things seem desperate, when things seem darkest, that's when God has a chance to show up and be who he is. As we come to the end of ourselves and we cry out to him, 
he gets to do what he always does, which is be God. Be God over our circumstances. Be God over our decisions. Be God over the chaos. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Look, in closing, I shared this last week, but, you know, as we look around our world, as we look around even just the Bay Area where we live, we, we see a giving over to idolatry. We see a giving over to godless and deceptive philosophies. You know, some mock Jesus and the gospel. Others are delaying. They're procrastinating, thinking that they have more time. But how are we responding? How is the love and gospel and commission of Jesus influencing the way that we see and engage with and respond to people who are groping in the dark? who are needing salvation, who are needing the light and life and hope of Jesus Christ, the one who wants to save them. Just like with Paul, we need Jesus to give us his heart of compassion for those that are lost and and boldness, creativity to bring his love and gospel to them. We need a greater sense of urgency in these days. Greater sense of urgency to see, to be reminded that the time is now. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to share the message of the gospel. And now is the time for any who haven't to respond to that gospel message, to Jesus. I want to give that opportunity this, this morning, if that's anybody, if you'd pray with me. Lord, we thank you, God, for this time in your word. Lord, we're thankful, God, for how your word, even written almost 2,000 years ago, speaks so perfectly into the things that we're dealing with today, we're seeing in our world today. Idolatry, godless philosophies, mockers, procrastinators, people in the darkness who are doing things that God are just awful. Lord, people in the darkness who are groping, wanting to find truth, wanting to find hope. Lord, we thank you that you and your grace helped us, God, to come to that place of realizing our own sinfulness and need for a Savior Helping us, Lord, to repent, to turn away from our sin, and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful, God, that you saved us while we were still sinners. Dying for us while we were still sinners. 
And that God, even as sinners who are being sanctified, that God, you're gracious and you're patient. Always working. Lord, always near. God, wanting to show your power in our lives. God, wanting to empower us, Lord, by your spirit to live for you. God, we pray that, Lord, you would give us Lord, an eternal perspective on, God, what we're seeing in our world today, Lord, what we're experiencing in our own lives even today. God, that we would have a greater kingdom-mindedness, a gospel focus, Lord, a greater urgency. God, to, to live out and to share your gospel. Lord, we need you. God, we can't do these things without you, Lord. We see our own weaknesses, Lord, our lack of love oftentimes for people, Lord, who are in opposition to you or, or are indifferent to you. God, we need your love, Lord. We need your heart of compassion. God, lead us in these days. Lord, give us boldness and creativity to find, Lord, those starting points to, to bring your gospel, to make that beeline to Jesus Christ. Lord, use us for your kingdom and your glory. But look, if there's anybody here today and you've come and you don't just first have a personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, Know this morning that Jesus loves you. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need anything that you could ever offer to him. But he has everything that you need this morning. The forgiveness and the grace and the hope and the peace and the eternal life and the salvation that only he can give. He has what each of us needs, and he is not far. He's near this morning. And he's wanting to save any who would repent and turn to him in faith. If that's anyone here this morning, would you stand? I'd love to pray for you. You make that decision for Jesus Christ to surrender your life to him. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Is that anybody here this morning? Maybe there's some joining us online even, and, and that's you. I just encourage you in your own heart to say, Jesus, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need your salvation. Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Jesus, I need you. And God, I repent of my sin. I turn away from it today. And I turn to you by faith. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross in my place. That you paid my debt in full. Jesus, I believe that you rose again 
on the third day. Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. Be my friend. Would you fill me with your spirit today and help me to live for you all the days of my life? Jesus, I put my trust in you. And I just encourage you, if you've done that this morning, if you've genuinely turned in faith to Jesus Christ, if you've surrendered your heart to him, the Bible says you will be saved. If you made that decision today, we'd love to follow up with you. If you'd maybe just let us know somehow that you've made that decision, we'd love to encourage you in your new walk with the Lord. But Lord, as we respond now to your word in songs of praise, maybe moments of repentance even for some this morning, God, where there's been things that have taken root in our lives, God, that don't belong, that aren't of you. Maybe sin that we've let have a, have a spot in one of the spare rooms of our heart that, God, they, it doesn't belong. God, would we this morning, Lord, confess those things to you, Lord. Call those things that, what you call it, that it's sin. And Lord, that we would turn away from those things, repenting God, experiencing once again your cleansing work, Lord, your forgiving power. God, would you meet and minister to your people? God, as we take the communion elements, God, that we would, Lord, truly commune with you, Lord. We would experience that closeness of fellowship with you as we remember your body that was broken, Lord, your blood that was shed. Jesus, we are thankful for you. Lord, would you lead us in these dark days? Lord, shine brightly through us. Lord, give us endurance. Lord, to keep persevering. Keep holding fast to you and not losing heart. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We worship you. And we praise you now in these songs. In Jesus' name, amen.